This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text to refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, 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 everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 130, and today I sat down with Alexandra Clark, the founder and CEO of Bon Bon Bon. Yes, that's three bonds, Bon Bon Bon. They are a chocolate company reinventing bonbons, their packaging, and the experience of eating and enjoying chocolate. Alex and I talked about how a raspberry truffle during a visit in Europe changed her life and inspired her to use chocolate as an art medium, why she created her own manufactory, starting with a 650-square-foot space in the back room of a diner, and why she advises entrepreneurs to prepare for best-case scenarios, not worst-case, just best-case scenarios. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, follow us on Spotify, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Thanks so much for being on the show today. How are you? Good. Good. I'm happy to be here. I've been looking forward to talking to you since we set this up. Uh, which was forever ago. I feel like I, I had, you know, I, know, I was experiencing bon bon bonds almost like a year ago. I feel like it's been a very long time. <laughs> it's we've literally been two lifetimes ago. I had two babies since the time. I mean, I had them simultaneously, but <laughs> right. yeah, I mean, that's a long time. That's two lifetimes ago. Since How we, are the twins doing to this moment? They're huge. Um, huge. <laughs> one of them, Hugo, my baby boy just got teeth yesterday. Wow. Wow. I are know. these your first? Yes, they are. Oh my gosh. First time around and boom, you're getting them both out at the same time. That's like double whammy time. How is it going? Totally. <laughs> totally. It's going good. It's actually, I was so nervous about it because I have no idea what to do with twins. And then I've really realized that Everything I was afraid of, I think this is probably like the best advice that I could give now. And I didn't even know that I needed it is like everything I was worried about didn't happen. And I spent a lot of time worrying about it. Like, how am I going to run this business with two babies? How am I going to do the two baby thing? Like, I don't even, there's no twins in my family. I don't really know anyone else who's, and then like, what if they're compared to each other for the rest of their lives? And they're so different, you know, everything it was a good lesson to be like, maybe you don't stress out about it. Cause that was a lot of energy you spent that was completely unnecessary, like totally irrelevant to what's going on. Having kids is stressful. I feel like I've never been more anxious in my life was until I was pregnant. <laughs> I mean, everything goes flooding through your head and you just like second guess yourself on everything you eat and do and drink. And you're like, oh my God, it's totally. so much pressure and responsibility to carry a child in your body. <laughs> Or two children in and your you body. Have no, like, <laughs> yeah. I think with business, at least you get financial reports, right? You get like live feedback on how you're doing mm-hmm. on, on your own performance, you know, but you don't really get that when it comes to kids. Like you don't get this, like, it's just like a little bit, you know, there is zero feedback loop until they're like one. And then they start engaging <laughs> with you and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so much more reward. This is when the rewarding part starts kicking in. <laughs> 
totally. I totally agree. Like, once they could start smiling when I did stuff, I was like, this is awesome. Right. This right. is so cool. But before that, I was just like, what do you need? What do you need to be perfectly happy? Are you comfortable? Are you hot? Are you cold? Are you breathing? Like, <laughs> well, congratulations on your two beautiful twins. Are they both boys, girls, boy, girl, a boy and a girl, Freddie, who's named after my grandma. She's Winifred and Hugo, Hugo Benito. Cute. Very cute. Well, congratulations. I am you you. know, excited that you've come, you've risen to the surface and now we can have this awesome interview. So let's dive in. Let's start with telling everybody in your own words, what Bon 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 is. Oh, that's so dangerous. I think, I mean, what it truly is has evolved over time, but it's always been like an experiment around this mentality, this idea that that chocolate could be better, like that there there's like a gooder option out there. And I think what what really strikes me is the contrast between what a lot of sort of quote unquote premium chocolate brands are advertising and then what's actually happening. So like you'll see like this you know, fancy, super tan, older white dude, like in a chef's hat using some kind of utensil that like nobody in a chocolate kitchen has ever seen before in their life. And it's, it's in this like really fancy ad with great lighting. And then, you know, with European words, and then all of a sudden, like what's actually happening is there's a bunch of like really badass ladies in New Jersey with like arms as big as your thighs, making like this awesome chocolate and they can do things so fast that look so simple, but are actually so hard. And it really sort of started to hit me that there's so much of this in the chocolate industry of like what, what is being sold and then what is actually happening that it was this idea of like, well, what if we just do the best we can at every moment with whatever we have to make the goodest chocolate we can possibly make at any time. And so this kind of the idea behind Bon 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 is like, it's like a good goodie, like bon, bon, bon. So, or three bonds, which is Trayvon, which is very good in French. So it's like the idea of just being, making the goodest chocolate that we possibly can at any time. And then it's all in the same format, right? Like they're all bonbons. So they're all the same shape and size, but then we fill them with all kinds of different things. And we really like lean into the word bonbon because there's, there's no internationally accepted definition of what a bonbon is, which means we get to take some liberties in terms of what goes in it. Whereas like with a truffle, it should be, you know, in the shape of a truffle, like the mushroom and it should be, it should be dusted in something. And, you know, like, can you really have it? A lot of rules. It's already been done. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of rules. And I think, I think that's probably been, I, I think that's, bending rules or finding my way around them has probably been a forte of mine in life. And so it really resonates with me and I really enjoy what we get to do. That's just because cool. It is a little like, yeah, it is a really little cool. bit They're like, like these little squares. They're like little squares that are all like decorated and filled with different things. And the packaging is like a whole nother story we'll get to, but I want to kind of go back and start with your childhood because you mentioned earlier before we hopped on that as a kid, you had dreams of opening a chocolate shop. And I'm like, how old were you as a kid when you (laughs) first had this dream? How does one have a dream about building a, you know, or having a chocolate shop at such an early age? We talk about this all the time in my family because my sister went to kindergarten graduation and they said, Natalie, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to be a baby doctor. And she is. She's a reproductive endocrinologist. She is literally a baby doctor. Is she older? She's older. And I mean, I would say like for me, it was way later than I was five. I got my first job at an ice cream shop and it's like a local Dairy Queen knockoff called the Dairy King. And I got the job when I was 14 and my sister was leaving it because she hated it. But wait, let's, we got to go back to when your sister who's older was already knew what she wanted to do and before she went to first grade, right? So back then, and you were younger than that. How, how many years were you apart when you realized, hey, my sister knows what she wants to do. I better figure it out soon. I don't know. I don't know if I like felt the pressure like that. My parents are old hippies, so they're pretty, they're pretty chill. And I think that that, they definitely expected, uh, well, here's the best example. So I, 
my mom's like, what do you want to do after high school? So and wait, I was like, so wait, so when you say child, so I'm just trying to get to the age where, well, how old were you when you realized that you wanted to start a chocolate shop? When you said to me that when you're a kid, you wanted to do it. Do you mean like teenager kid or were you like actual child? I'd say by 14, I knew I wanted to be in the food space and open a business. And by 19, I knew it was chocolate. Mm, okay. So let's talk about your childhood before we get to that then. So what kind of kid were you growing up? What was it like? What kind of parents did you have? Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Detroit? I grew up West of Detroit in a town called Plymouth. It's like the little train depot town that leads into the city. Mm, cool. And what was, um, what kind of kid were you like? I like fun. So I did a lot of having fun. We had five neighbors in our neighborhood and then just a bunch of like rentals and old people. And so we were pretty close to each other, but it was a unique and eclectic group of kids. So we were introduced to a lot right away, which was really cool. And I think that left our minds big. And also being the youngest of that group of five, I got to see everybody make their own decisions and, and implement them really, really well. Like they would leave, they'd go to high school and they'd do cool things. And then they'd go to college or go off into the world and, and go on interesting adventures. And so it just kind of became normalized in a way that was really, really healthy. And I'm really, really lucky. And like I said, my parents are sort of of the same boat where they're, they're really supportive. They're really interesting. They'll really like pursue interests in a way that's very dedicated. Like my mom was very into sourdough throughout the pandemic in a way that was what would even be to me absolutely exhausting. And I mean, she's like, she wanted a fence that matched our house. They like, they moved into our house in 1987 and it, you could see from the first floor through the attic roof and they built it to be an exact exact 1890s museum practically from things that they found in the trash from things that they picked up places like they they get really invested in a project and so I definitely had that going into like built up in me as a kid of this idea of like it's it's okay to really dive into a project and it's also okay to really dive into a project and then not finish it like my mom always says this thing that her dad said which is like you know, just because we bought it doesn't mean we need to live with it. And it's not that we had a ton of money, but that was always sort of the theory around any sort of resource that you spent, whether it was time or anything like just because you were interested in it for a long period of time, just because you've been ice skating for two years doesn't mean you need to ice skate for the rest of your life. You know, and I think that's something I needed to hear because I remember I got a journal when I was five and I started writing in my journal for like, you know, two weeks. And I was like, man, I've been doing this for two weeks. And I literally still journal today. I think because I felt like I, you know, there is actually a part of me that needs to be told just because you started something doesn't mean you need to like do it for the rest of your life. But it, yeah, I was really primed in this cool environment of an interesting eclectic group of people doing interesting things and big, interesting things. And, and it was very normal to not be normal. Sorry, I'm just going back. Cause so it sounds like you have this natural kind of internal commitment to things so much so that you have to tell yourself, remind yourself that you can actually let it go and move on to do other things. Is that kind of accurate? Oh yeah, totally. So when you were a kid, what kind of sports did you play? What I'm trying to get a sense for your childhood as a kid, obviously, you know, you start journaling when you're six, but what kind of kid were you? I didn't talk for a long time. I sort of just followed my sister around. I was really observing the world and I was very interested in and how things worked and how things were made. So even my parents said it was exhausting finding children's books for me. And they ended up landing on craft books because I wasn't so interested in like these storybooks of somebody going and doing something. I was very interested in like, how do you make a car move? Like, okay, an engine. Okay, like how does an engine work? And like, what is it connected to? And to this day, I still think I'm interested in the same things. And I think it took me a lot to sort of like process that. And I, and I would say even in leadership today, like I really prefer to, to kind of sit back and take things in and listen to what all of these people that I've hired that are experts at what they do are thinking and feeling and try to create connections and figure out how it all goes together. 
And I think that's probably what I was doing with my sister is, is like figuring out the world through her eyes. And so I just sort of did whatever she did until I got really, really tall and started playing basketball. And then I played basketball and I did triathlons and I did theater and I mostly like painting sets and designing it. We had a really awesome theater program at our high school. So it was a really good artistic outlet for me. And I was always doing crafts and my mom used to say she would ground me sometimes just to get me to stay at home because I just, I wanted to do everything. I still want to do everything, but I definitely was a very active child in terms. I just, I wanted to know, I wanted to learn. Like there was nothing that wasn't interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you were talking about kind of going back, you were mentioning that you had a first job. And when you were a teenager, you started to um, become interested in chocolate. Tell us about that. Yeah, I wanted this job so bad. It was the ice cream from my house. So I, yeah, and I didn't eat a car to get there. And so many nice people worked there. And I was like, these would be great friends for me to have that I don't know yet, because I went to a school that was kind of far away. And so I was like very nervous going in and asking for the job, even though my sister worked there and totally knew that I was getting the job. And so I basically took my sister's job at this ice cream shop. And I, I was like, I am going to love this. This is, this is perfect. And then went in for my first shift and immediately discovered how hard it is working in customer service and working in food, which is true. That, that ultimate reality is always there. So I went home crying for my first day, even though everyone was really, really nice. I think it was just totally overwhelming. And I went back into my second day and I fell in love. I absolutely loved it. That's interesting. I feel like a lot of people might, if they have a bad day, not want to show up for the second day. If it wasn't for my mom, there's no way I would have just been like, thank you so much. But I also knew it was that like, it was like that job or no job. You know, it was like that or picking weeds for my mom for like a penny a weed which was, you know, not the same as like working at an ice cream shop. So I really, I really wanted it. So you went back for your second day and you said it was the best day. What was so different about that second day versus the first? I think I was anticipating like all of the ick that just inherently exists in that space. And then I went in and got to see the part that's really cool. And it's to this day, the part that I really enjoy, which is we don't nutritionally need ice cream we we want it i mean people come and get ice cream for reasons where they're like celebrating a baseball win or they're going out on a first date and i realized my job was just to make sure that they had a good experience and when it came to that and you realize like the worst thing at stake was ice cream you know when i realized i had a boss that wasn't going to be mad at me if i messed up an order when i realized i was in a space where everyone was going to try to help me and my job literally was just being there to facilitate these either very, very good or very, very sad moments that people were, you know, articulating in their lives using ice cream. It was so cool. It became such an honor. It was like, yeah, of course I'll do that and get paid. Like, that sounds amazing. I would love to. Serving ice cream, you're saying. So it wasn't really cashier. It was serving ice cream or both? Both. We did both. So we, we would take the order, make it, and then bring it back, bring it back and bring them up. And I just like loved this job. And and it came to the point where my mom was asking me what I wanted to do after high school. And I was like, well, I just kind of want to keep doing this. Like, I really like it. And I knew that I, I understood that buying the business, if I was going to do that would be something that would be very far out and more expensive than I could afford with any of the resources I had at the time. And so I had to do something. And my mom had gone to Michigan state who has an amazing dairy science program. And she was like, let's go to Michigan state we'll go look around and let's see, maybe that could be a thing. And so we go there and they have their own power center at Michigan state and the power center went down that day. And so we're walking into the ice cream store at Michigan state thinking, maybe I can go here to learn about ice cream. And the power goes out and they say, there's nothing we can do because it's the central power for the university. We're going to have to give away all of this ice cream. And so here it was like, a sign from the heavens, right? Of this is a, would you like to eat copious amounts of ice cream in the sun on this beautiful day on this gorgeous campus right by these gardens? And they're like, Hey, as long as you're here, do you want to go check out the dairy processing facility? You're like, who are these friendly people? Like, yeah. Okay. So it was, it was this chance thing where you're like, yeah, I think I want to go to Michigan state. 
Oh my gosh. Signs from the heavens or the universe or whatever you want to believe in, right? That's amazing that, I mean, I definitely believe in signs like that happening. That's incredible. I do too. And I'm so thankful because I, I oftentimes think about like, what would my life be like if that, I don't know what I would have chosen to do, but I don't think that's what I, the choice I would have made if I hadn't been kind of forced to marinate in that space. Like I had to with a giant ice cream and, and no power. You know, there was literally nothing else to do, but to explore the thought of like, oh, I could do this. And maybe I could look at making ice cream more, or maybe, you know, it's right by like the food journalism program. And they're like, a lot of people are double majoring. And and I'm like, oh, like there, it's sort of, I think a lot of the careers surrounded around my interests of at that time, just being like ice cream and this feeling of being able to help people or serve people or make them smile in some way. A lot of the career opportunities that are involved in that just had never really been introduced to me. So I had no idea even what I could do with that. And even to this day, like I, I recently moved into a new house. My neighbor's an industrial designer. He's explaining what he does. And I'm like, that's it. Like if somebody had explained industrial design to me, oh my gosh, like that's, I mean, that is what I crave. Like that's the part of Bon 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 that I love to do the most. And I, I think it's funny that even if you pick something and even if you create your dream job, which is really what I've ultimately done that, along the way you kind of find you find or you really hone in on what that dream actually is or what it's called and you get to give it a name and you get to find other people that like doing it and you get to learn more about it and and yeah even if you're being super specific and knowing that oh I want to go into ice cream or eventually grow into chocolate that's not the end of the road there's it goes so much further than that. Well, humans are, you know, dynamic. We have more than one singular, I think, interest. And also we evolve over time. So, I mean, things that, I mean, I used to love the fashion industry. I don't really care for it anymore. (laughs) I grew grew out of it, right? When I was um, a college student and in my early 20s, I used to love the fashion industry. And, you know, so people people adapt, they change, they grow, they've got different interests, they want to be challenged, they want to grow and learn new things. So I think that's really natural and normal, even as entrepreneur. But, and so you're saying, so when, did you go to Michigan, Michigan state and then also how was it? And then what did you, how did, you know, things evolve for the chocolate company? It was good. I had a super positive experience. I think I didn't know what to expect from like the university setting. And so I just went in being like, what do I do? Where do I go? And I ended up spending my sophomore year in Norway. My grandma was adopted by a Norwegian family. So even though we aren't even a little bit Norwegian, uh, culturally, it's, we are very Norwegian. And so I had the opportunity to keep studying there. And it was really there. Well, it was really my friends there. The exchange program that I was on was at a private school. And I had never, I had never experienced anything like that before. I'd never experienced that level of wealth. And I had never experienced, I mean, it's just a different culture in general, like the Norwegian culture, but also the exchange student culture that was there. And everybody was, was great and really fun and quickly caught on that on a weekend that I would be like, okay, well, my friend and I would be like, we're going to grab bus tickets and go to this little tiny town that's over here. And then like, maybe get some groceries and we'd be like, what are you doing? And they'd be like, we're going to Portugal. And it was just like, ha 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 ha, you know, like, okay, well have fun in Portugal and we'll see you later. And then And then it got to the point where they were sort of like, we're going to Portugal. Would you like to come with us? And people were extending these generosities that were just awesome and so kind. And and so it was like pre-Yelp or finding reviews on Google. And a lot of what we would do while we were traveling was just like find a place with really tall buildings and then go to the really tall buildings and see what they are and learn what we could and then keep going. But I would make a point to research the best chocolate shop in any city that we went to so that I could take my friends and shout some chocolate. And there's actually something really cool and universal about chocolate that I appreciate so much, which is you can buy the best piece of chocolate in any city in the world. And in general, that's going to be less than $5. And I think that that's amazing because you can't walk into the best restaurant in any city, anywhere in the world. And and say like, could I just have a bite? Like, could I just experience the food culture at this level in the city to understand it and just exchange like $3 for that one bite of chocolate or for that one bite of your meal? And they would be like, 
I mean, some chefs are quirky enough that they would be like, heck yeah, here you go. But in generally speaking, that's not the way it works. You know, like in order to access culinary genius at that level, generally speaking, you're spending hundreds of dollars and not, you know, dollars. And so I really became fascinated with chocolate from that perspective, especially being from Detroit, which is a place that has a lot of income inequality. And, and it became an obsession over time where I started to think about how, how different the experience is for one person than it is for multiple people, which we can pick up on in a second. But basically I ended up going to one chocolate shop that I really understood. I understood the approach that they were taking. I was in Amsterdam, it's called Puccini Bambani. And you walk in and I'm getting, I'm buying chocolate for my friends and I got a raspberry truffle, which is not something I would usually get, but that's what I got. And it was perfect. It, it was just absolutely perfect. Like it was one of those things where you bit into it and you understood the experience that somebody was trying to give you. And that was sort of the aha moment where you were like, oh, you can communicate with people the same way that you communicate at the ice cream shop, but you can do it without being face to face. Like you can represent an experience, you can prepare and design an experience for somebody and it, an experience of joy and you don't even need to be there. Like they can, you can reliably and consistently create that and somebody can have that. It was just mind blowing. I, I walked out, I ate my raspberry truffle and then I got right back in line and I got another one. I got a rhubarb one. And that was it. By the time I walked out of there, I was like, it's not ice cream, it's chocolate. Like it's definitely chocolate. And I think as a kid, I had always been super, super creative, but I just like never found a medium my sister's an amazing drawer and my mom welds and sews and my dad can do things with woodworking that are just absolutely unbelievable. And I kind of am just like the creative kid who loves to do all that stuff. But, but once I figured out chocolate as a product, as a creative outlet, it was just game over. I mean, by the time I came back to Michigan state, it was just guns reeling of like how, how do I learn more about this? I was just making appointments with random people that sounded relevant at the university being like, hi, so this is what I want to do. How do I do that? How do you make a truffle? Is that what you're saying? How more like, how do you, I think once you start looking into the chocolate industry, you realize like big words come up, things like child slave labor and, you know, sustainability. And you're sort of like, how do I do this and not hurt anyone? Like, how do I do this right? Like, what is the right way to do that? And so I ended up working for an agricultural research group through Michigan State for called Partnerships for Food Industry Development, which is part of USAID. And we were studying chocolate and olive oil and wine and lamb and looking at all of these sort of gourmet goods from a value chain perspective to see, see what was going on there. And my boss walked into my office one day and said, good news, bad news. And the good news was, well, the bad news was I was losing my job, but the good news was that my job was waiting for me. I just had to move to New Zealand and do my master's in agricultural economics. So it's hard to say no to that. And I moved to New Zealand and continued researching there pretty much until I couldn't take it anymore. I had gone to a chocolate culinary school in Chicago in between in college, like on a break, and then um, returned to go back to pastry school in order to really understand. I had this food science background for my undergrad, and then I had this agricultural economics background, and I had the culinary background, but it was only chocolate specific. And a lot of what we do with chocolate, because we make it fresh and we don't put a six month shelf life on it, a lot of what we're doing is imparting fresher, realer flavors into the chocolate that we make in order to make a more accurate experience when you talk about that experience you're trying to, to relate to somebody. We rely on the tools of tools and mentality of pastry rather than the tools and mentality of a lot of the chocolate and food science of how long can we make this last? And I was really worried about that when we opened and then it turned out that most people were eating their chocolate like pretty much right away. So shelf life really hadn't, wasn't as much of an issue as I had anticipated initially. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills and compostable packets that you can get to delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So I've noticed that you have these like factory tours and workshops on your website and you have this, I'm going to maybe pronounce it wrong, Hamtramck. (laughs) Yeah, Hamtramck. Okay, (laughs) Tramick. There we go. Manufactory. I'm curious. So have you had to basically build your own manufacturing, like your own factory, because you wanted to do it a very special way? Yeah, we built our own manufacturing. We bought, um, we started in 650 square feet with $32,000 that I was awarded from a cab accident I was in when I was actually ironically leaving a chocolate show that I was doing, conducting research at. And I had $32,000 and we got this back room of a Coney Island, which is like a diner in Detroit. And, and I knew that there were some things that I absolutely needed in order to make chocolate the way that I wanted to make it. And the idea of making it the way that we make it is to minimize waste because working in some of the chocolate factories that I would work in, I mean, if you were enrobing, let's say cherry cordials and you have 12 people working on the line, packing cherry cordials, and then a couple of guys down the line making the making the cherry cordial bases. And then all of a sudden the, the enrobing gets too thick. So the outer layer is too thick. You can't fit those cherry cordials in the boxes anymore. And we would sit there and as an economist at this point in time, I'm sitting there counting what's going on and the number of people and the amount of labor that's being spent for all of this wasted product. And I was like, never again. So by forming chocolate the way we form it, we can eliminate a large amount of the waste by creating the most like temperamental no pun intended part before we're actually adding fillings in it at a stage where you can still scrap it and reuse it if you need to. And so ideas like this just kind of kept coming to me and kept coming to me as I was working for other people and learning through other, other places. And, and eventually they all kind of came together and being able to implement them in 650 square feet was by no means the way that I absolutely wanted to do it. But what I found when I was exploring all of these like offers for support and for capital from friends and from mentors was that taking on the capital meant also doing things in a more traditional way or in a way people were more familiar with. And oftentimes they wouldn't explain, they couldn't understand why things needed to be done a certain way or what, what these sort of hypotheses were that I was operating on. And it was one of those things where I was like, well, why don't I just start it? And then I can show you and then we'll figure it out from there. And what happened was... I used all of these hypotheses and I started it. And I mean, the 
the night before we opened, I remember just laying on the counter and being like, Opened what? I'm sorry. I'm getting lost. I'm getting lost, Alex. So you're saying the night before you opened what? The 650 square foot? Yeah. The night before we opened the doors to that 600 square foot, 650 square foot manufacturing, all I could think is this is the worst mistake I've ever made in my entire life because everyone who's ever advised me or anyone who I have, you know, like clung to for support in how to open a business has told me head on that they would do it differently than what I was doing. But I just believed so strongly. I mean, it's as simple as, you know, the saying life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. Isn't that from Forrest Gump? Yeah. And it's just become a cultural thing. Like life is like a box of chocolate. Like we're like, that's cute. And you're like, well, okay. So why don't we just label the chocolate? It's so simple, but it's so, we've just like, taken these inefficiencies in the industry and some of this like antiquity and been like, Oh, it's so cute that we don't know what we're eating. And it's, it's actually not, or it's, it's inconvenient or we, isn't there a better way? And so we open with this better way and our best stab at it, which really isn't cute. It's in the back end of a Coney Island on the wrong way of a one-way street. So even if you saw it, you couldn't even turn down the street in a little tiny town that nobody can pronounce, like you said, in Hamtramck, Michigan. And it went gangbusters. I mean, on the first day that we were open, I had 12 friends who were chefs or in the chocolate industry or, or close enough that they had worked with me before. And they were making as much chocolate as they possibly could. And we had all of the chocolate that we were going to sell that day and all the chocolate that we were going to sell out to hotels as like guest amenities. And we were unpacking the shipments and we sold enough in our first day to pay our rent for a year. And we continued at that pace for the first three years of Bon Bon Bon. It was absolutely nuts. Within four months, we were winning awards from Martha Stewart. We were, I mean, in New York every other week, it was, I, we were, I, there's a Forbes article. It was like how Alexandra Clark turned $32,000 into a chocolate phenomenon. And it was nuts. And I just wasn't prepared for that. I, I think I spent so much time in this mindset of, you know, people say, what are you going to do if it doesn't work? What's your plan B? What's your plan C? Make sure you have a, a fallback plan. Like what happens if that? And I had a plan for all of that. Like I was really, really prepared, but, but when people ask for advice today, what I always say when they're at that stage is what are you going to do if it's wildly successful? Like, what if it's not just your example to show people who would potentially invest what you're talking about because they need to see it and taste it instead of you using all of these words? What if you're right? Because I don't think we do a lot of, of planning around that. And we all should. I think Bon 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 is absolutely the example. I mean, I would have killed for another week of planning within that three years, but it was far too busy implementing and learning and making mistakes and growing whether we wanted to grow or not during that first three years that we didn't really even catch up with ourselves until year four. And by that time we were already an established brand. So that would be one of my take homes. If anybody's listening to this and that gets to help anyone who's out there, maybe think about what are you going to do if this is like, you know, the hottest thing since sliced bread. Right. That's so true. I think if so many people are like, what, is, what happens if it doesn't work out? What are you doing? There's lots of chocolate companies out there. It's going to be so competitive. You know, I'm sh I think there's a lot more people kind of thinking more analytically or thinking that things aren't possible than there are the optimists in the world that are saying, but what if it's going to be huge? And what if you're right? And this could be so different from everything else. You guys have incredible packaging. I'd love to touch on that a little bit. How did you come up with the packaging? Can you tell us a little bit more about it? I love how they're individually wrapped. And like you said, they they have expiration dates. They tell you what's inside. It's um, a really cool experience to try to open up those little cartons. Like I don't even know how you guys, what you call the wrapper on the chocolates, but they're really fun to open. I actually didn't know how to open it at first. <laughs> so the first one was kind of like, you know, ripped apart, but um, I figured it out on the second or third one. So they're really cool. How did you kind of come up with the idea for the unique packaging? And even the kind of, isn't it like a cardboard-ish box it's in too? I was like, really, I've never seen packaging like that for chocolate 
either, but it seems it's also, it's obviously sustainable. So I'd love to hear how you came up with that. So it's honeycomb corrugated and it's so funny that you struggled with. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny you struggled with opening the first one because communicating how to open the box is always in every redesign of our tape is the primary fixture of what we're trying to do. And we're working on one right now. So I love that you said that because we've been talking about it. Yeah, it's actually both are hard to open. It's like the big box that has all the the, um, bonbons inside. And then the individual wrapper for the bonbon is also like a challenge to open. It was all totally. totally. And we have like scissors on the outside and we have cut lines and we have like we it's just completely different than any other chocolate box that anyone has ever opened. So it's I mean, we even have to communicate on the box like this box is chocolate so that when somebody's shipping it to friends that when they open it, they know what they've received. And they are like, bon, bon, bon. like what? it's so obvious once you get going, but, but yeah, that's definitely been a fun, like design challenge is communicating in this box that no one's ever seen what it is and how to interact with it. But I love that people have to approach it that way. So the cruciforms, which are like the little boxes on the inside fold up around it. And that's really important to me in particular, because there's this thing called patty paper, which you use to stack hamburger patties. And like the only other use that you have for it is for wrapping up chocolate. And I was working at a chocolate shop in Boston that was right by Mass General Hospital. And this woman came in and she was, she came in and she was like, it's my, my aunt's dying and she loves chocolate and she won't eat anymore. And she's like, we're just going to give it a try. We don't know if it'll work, but I'm just going to buy some things that I know she would like. And, you know, she was just buying a couple pieces. So we didn't have a box that was small enough to put them in. And here I'm giving this woman her like dying pieces of chocolate in hamburger patty paper. And it just felt wrong. Like that doesn't seem, it just doesn't make sense. And during that time too, I like went through this breakup that was not very fun. And I wanted to go home for Thanksgiving and I didn't have enough money for the plane ticket. It was like 800 bucks. And so I found a flight to Paris, which was 400 bucks instead. And I went to Paris for Thanksgiving. (laughs) That's awesome. And And I went to 66 chocolate shops in four days and I pretty much ate nothing but chocolate and like the free food at the hostel. And I took notes on every single one of them. And I'm in line at this chocolate shop that's actually from the South of France, but they have like a little Paris shop. And there's this like super handsome guy in front of me and he speaks fluent French and he's ordering this like giant box of chocolates and like everything inside of me just hurts. Cause I'm like, he's probably buying it for some like really amazing lady and he's super well-dressed and I smell like a hostel and I'm just buying one piece and blah, 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 blah. And I was really like hung up on the patty paper problem in Boston. And so I was like, surely in Paris, they have the answer. You know, I think that's my feeling about a lot of things. Like surely the Parisians know, like what is the perfect red lip color? Like in Paris, they would know, they would tell me what the perfect red lip color is. Yes. Yeah. They do have a lot of answers. They have a lot of answers to They know. Yeah. (laughs) They know. And so, so I went there and I got patty papered in Paris and it felt like the Mr. Bean sketch, you know, like in Love Actually, when Mr. Bean is packing up the jewelry and he's like, but wait, like you need the flowers and then you need this. And then and he's doing all this fancy packaging. And that's what this like super handsome guy in front of me got was like the Mr. Bean in Love Actually experience with like all of the, where he was like, please too much, but keep going, you know? And then I got patty papered with my terrible French feeling disgusting about myself. And I was like, never at my chocolate shop will people have these feelings. Like, it just can't be that way, especially in Detroit, where where like one person might come in and that might be like the fanciest thing they've done for themselves all day, you know? And that's not talking income status. That's talking like, that's talking expendable resources status. Like they might have two minutes to jump in there or they might only have $3 and that's how they choose to spend it. But it's like, whether you have that piece or you're in there and you're buying a hundred, like you should not feel any less special about your experience. So what did you decide to do? What did you decide to use instead? So we decided to use, I'm from Detroit where you aren't allowed to date boys who don't drive American vehicles. So I knew it had to be made out of things that were close by and people in Detroit know honeycomb corrugated the material we use for the outer box because we use it to package auto parts. And so we use the honeycomb material with other things that we could source paper products that are all fully curbside recyclable. 
And so instead of ordering in all of our packaging from China, which is a real issue in the chocolate industry, because you usually have to place your orders before you're actually getting your orders from your customer. And then there's a lot of waste there. There's a lot of storage rooms in the world holding old chocolate packaging that's just like not inventoried very well. And for us, that's never an issue because we fly through our packaging in the same order that we do with our chocolate and we don't have to store it. We don't have to warehouse it in the same capacity that you have to with all of this like seasonal packaging. And then we use a paper tape, recyclable paper tape, and we close it all up and label it all so that hopefully people can figure out how to get into the box and what's in it and what they're eating. And that feels super important too with things like, like I have a hazelnut allergy. So I really appreciate knowing in chocolate, sometimes hazelnut's a mystery. They won't really tell you it's in there. And for us, we label all of the major allergens. So if somebody has a religious belief and wants to avoid alcohol, we label that as well, um, which is something just important to our community. And then if you're allergic to hazelnuts, by God, it says that there's hazelnuts in it. So you know that you shouldn't eat that piece. Yeah. So what, you know, you've been building this business for how many years now has it been since you've been working on it? It's been eight years. Wow. Which is nuts. Yeah. And it's completely different than it was eight years ago. And so during these eight years, you know, I know there's been a lot of challenges and ups and downs. What's been one of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome? I think one of the biggest challenges was the growth we actually saw during the pandemic. We, it was just such a period of uncertainty and we were assuming the worst and pretty comfortable with it. We were like, we've been a small chocolate shop before. We know how to do that. Like we got this, this will be no problem, you know? And then we ended up like tripling or quadrupling our online sales. We broke our website, had to rebuild a website, an online platform, opened a new retail store. And I mean, our business just skyrocketed. It absolutely skyrocketed. And what is that from? How did they find out about you guys? Was it through social media? Like, where did it all come from? I'm not certain where all of it came from, but I do know what people were using it for, which is a lot of the notes that were coming through. And the reason why we refused to close was because we were getting all of these notes from people, like people's parents. And it would be like, sweetie, we are so proud of the work you're doing in the emergency room at Beaumont hospital right now. Like we are so proud of, you know, like you're being so brave every single day, love mom and dad. And we're, I mean, that's literally why So it was like gifts to nurses and doctors and stuff during the pandemic. From their parents. And it just, I mean, that's the kind of stuff like we have, I think up until then our, we had a certain market and I think that it had started reaching, like we call them the Facebook moms, like the really lovey moms that are like always cheering you on on Facebook. So like, I think our market has a lot of moms. And I think up until then, the moms started to think we were cool. And they were like, what is this weirdo chocolate shop you keep bringing at Christmas? And I ultimately think that pandemic was like them understanding how to order online from us. And it became something that not only not only people our age, which is our, our age at the time, it was still like a lot of just young people were, were more age diverse now, I guess, but it just became something where it was like multi-generational and it wasn't just this one generation of people that were looking for a different chocolate indulgence per se, but then other people understanding it and accepting it and gifting it. And then once they, once they understood how to do it, they're like, Oh, I can send this, like this weirdo chocolate to my friends or like, Oh, I didn't know that they were like sourcing all of their chocolate from Ecuador or like they would find all of these interesting things out. And then they'd start following us on Instagram. And I think it just correlated really well with all of that. And just a need, a need to send something. Yeah. So I I know the question around the biggest challenge, you know, I think that that's a good challenge to have is like, oh, we're growing so fast. It's so crazy. Like that was so hard. But that's, I think, what everybody wishes happens, right? So what I mean by what's the biggest challenge is actually when did you kind of fall to the ground and feel like you couldn't get back up? And how did you get back up? When was that moment, right? Did you have a moment where you were questioning if this was actually going to work? Did you, you know, when when was the time that you got knocked down? Maybe you did something the wrong way uh, or it's just something, right? I think that there's always something that can happen in business that really que- like challenges our, you know, our resilience. 
No, like you said, I think that that was definitely a positive one. And on the surface, it's like, oh, wow, we wish that that could happen. But what I think other people don't see from the outside is when you're down to maybe six employees from 50 because people aren't comfortable working and you're up against this idea of like, do we just close down? Well, we can't close down because these are the kind of messages that we're getting from people. And the orders are coming through so fast that literally your website no longer works, which means you now need to invest in a new website under uncertain times. And you have to sit and make that decision of, do we stay open, which is hard, you know, or do we not stay open, which is hard. I mean, hard because where do you find the money? And are you really willing to invest in this uncertain of a time and expanding your business when everyone tells you that your business is going to be gone? And it ultimately came down to a text conversation between me and my production manager of yes or no, what are we doing? I mean, if we stay open, it's literally like a fifth of our crew, if not less, making at that time, twice as much chocolate as we usually do. Like we have to figure out how to get very efficient, very fast in an environment when nobody wanted to work for very understandable reasons that they were concerned about, about their other responsibilities for taking care of family and friends. So, so it just felt like you were stuck between a rock and a hard place of like, we didn't know how to stop and we didn't know how to not stop and everything was broken. So it was either going a hundred percent all of the way in and, or just dropping it all. And and the reason why it seems easy is because we went 100% all the way in and it worked. But it so easily could have not worked. At that point, we didn't know. We didn't know that, you know, after that, we would just continue to see sales rise and rise and rise. And we'd be opening even more retail locations. And, and you know, our Instagram reach would double and all of that. We didn't know that. I mean, I think it's easy to look back on, on a challenge and in hindsight say like, well, that's such a great challenge to have. But in that moment, when we had to decide what we were going to do, I wanted to vomit either way. I hated it. I just, I hated all of it. It's like, I, it was one of those things where like, man, I just want to make chocolate. Like, why am I running a food pantry out of my kitchen for my employees that may or may not ever come back? Like, like, it's not that I don't want to do that. Like I want to be good to my employees, but it just, I didn't know how to, like I said, like our values are always to do the best we can do for at any time with whatever resources we had. And I didn't know how to do very good for any one of our stakeholders because I just didn't have a lot of resources to do what I wanted to do. So I think it was a lot like opening Bamaban when, I mean, I had this like spreadsheet on Excel that had every single expense that I needed to spend in order to open the business. And, and I highlighted the ones in green. I put them in order by what was most important and, and some things didn't make it on there. (laughs) Like, a printer or a freezer. And those are things that I could borrow from friends or from the restaurant next door. And I felt very much like that of like, okay, so if we're going to do this, like what's most important. And it's really hard to do that when some of the things that are really important to you or that you think are really important to you are, are on that list, but like not making the cut. And so it was, it was awful. It was excruciating and horrible. And it looks really, really good in hindsight because we made the right decision, but we were really uncertain about what it was. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you had any limiting beliefs that you've had to overcome to get to where you are today? Absolutely. I think that I am really learning that I can continue to have a conversation with my customers and be there for them through design and through um, experience. And even through the people that I work with and the culture that I build at my company, whereas I certainly believed that I had to be in the store every day in order to keep them happy. And to some extent for some customers, maybe that's true, but that's ultimately not good for me or good for them. So that's certainly been one. And I do think that I grew up in a really amazing and very humble community and neighborhood and household. And I think that imagining, imagining financial success, that's like on a different level. Sometimes I think of as bad and I just think like, Oh, you know, I have this perception that like having a big pile of money is bad. And so I'm not very like financially motivated. My team always 
like laughs at me when we're talking about finances because it just doesn't it just doesn't get me going you know like I can't understand the incentive in it like it doesn't it's just not there and frankly I'm really lucky for the people that I have on my team who are so concerned about that on on our behalf in order to make sure that we're making really solid decisions but I will say that that's definitely something that I'm I'm trying to learn about myself and trying to learn more about as a <laughs> as a subject and I, I'm taking an active interest in really trying to understand it because it's just not something I know that I have a lot of limiting beliefs and limiting emotions, really. I wouldn't say they're really thoughts as much as feelings around, around what the accumulation of wealth means. And ultimately that could impact the success of my business. And the success of my business doesn't just mean me. It means, you know, the success of, of, of my employees and, and, my team and my managers and the projects that they get to invest in and the size and scale that they get to work on. And, and I think that mindset's really helpful for you when you're just starting something and this idea of being really scrappy and making it work. And I mean, I was really proud that there was a moment that I had $7 left in my bank account. I thought that was, I was like, yeah, and I did that. And I, you know, and I bounced back from that and all for my own business. And that's just not the mentality that carries you through once once your business is kind of like through adolescence. Right, right. That's interesting, right? Because when you, when you do start out and you're trying to be resourceful and scrappy, like you said, you're kind of like looking at every penny. But really, when you start doing that at scale, it's really, really hard because then you're maybe not investing in the right things or you just have to think a little bit bigger and you have to change your mindset, like you said, to more of like a growth mindset and probably change a lot of the emotions and beliefs around the accumulation of wealth and success for the business from a financial perspective. Um, so you definitely want to try to imagine more than $7 left in the bank, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So before we wrap up here, what's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs and what's your grand vision for Bon Bon Bon? What's coming next? The best advice I've ever gotten in my life was actually about an Ironman triathlon. And I love triathlon. And, and one of my former boss and coach and mentor was like, just keep walking. And what he meant was on the run for the triathlon when you're absolutely exhausted, like, and you're thinking about quitting because everybody does when it gets hard don't think about quitting while you're still walking. Like keep moving forward. You don't have to be sprinting all the time, but at least if you're contemplating that, mo like stopping altogether, don't sit down and contemplate it. Keep moving in the direction you already decided. And I mean, he laughs when I tell him this, but that's the best business advice that I've ever been given is, you know, like, yeah, you, you start, I think as entrepreneurs, we have an idea in our head and then we have another idea in our head and then we have another idea and and sometimes you're like, oh, I hate this, or I don't want to do this part anymore. Or, I want to just scrap this and move it into this. And, or you just are, you know, like totally incapacitated with the amount of responsibilities that you have at that time. And the advice that I have, because I think the time that's most overwhelming with those sorts of feelings is right when you're getting started is just keep walking, like just keep doing the little bits, keep going in the direction that you set out on and it becomes clear. And at least when you, when it is clear again, you'll be maybe 20 feet further ahead than you were when you were, you know, overwhelmed. But I think walking through overwhelm is, is a great tool and resource. And, and I, had you not said that I would really be in a different place than I'm at right now. Kind of why I, I named the podcast Stairway to CEO, because it's really climbing a lot of stairs to get <laughs> to oh. building a business. And you don't want to just stop in the middle of the stairway. You know, you can't just stop climbing the stairs. You have to like get to the top and see what's up there. And I don't think, it's <laughs> you know, I don't know if it actually ever ends. You know, we might all be on a endless stairway, but at least maybe we can listen to some Stairway to Heaven on the way. Why don't you tell us what else? is next for Bon Bon Bon. Oh my goodness. So many things. We've partnered with a really good friend, Jenny from Conexion Chocolate in Ecuador. So we have this like fully transparent, beautiful, amazing supply chain that allows us to really assess our impact as a company, but also to buy this incredible Ariba Nacional cacao out of Ecuador. So we're just 
so spoiled because it just really bolsters our product quality forever and lets us work with another female-owned business and a lot of female-owned farms, which I just get so excited about. So we're working on that project. And then with her, we're working on releasing all kinds of other products. We're working on opening another retail store. We are working on endlessly working on building the website now that we have our new website platform so we can build onto it in ways that really like serve our customers. And our large orders business is just growing like nuts. So we're putting a lot of human effort there. And it's more of the same as like, it's, it's still doing the best we can with whatever resources we have. It's just, we're at this point where we actually have accumulated some resources. We can actually invest in things and we can think smart and proactively rather than reactively and, and on the fly. And that's been a really fun challenge, especially for like the veteran people that have been around for a really long time at Bon 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 to work into this new mindset and, and see, and hopefully be an example of, of what could be possible in terms of making the goodest chocolate we possibly can make. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed hearing your story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.